Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you for being here. Before we listen to my next guest, I want to ask that if you like the podcast, please subscribe to the channel and leave a positive review so we can grow this channel. I've been working really hard for you guys to grow by putting systems in place that bring on guests who are very valuable to you. And I'm just going to be honest, it hasn't been an easy ride. So I would certainly appreciate your support. Also, let me know your thoughts by texting me at 714-294-0269. Again, 714-294-0269. Zero two six nine. Last time, seven one four two nine four zero two six nine. To ask about details and to receive future podcasts directly to your cell phone. Let's continue with the podcast. Okay, so uh, Ben, you know we've talked quite a bit. Uh, we've talked a few times, uh, or once maybe even. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit more about kind of what you're doing in the cannabis arena. Um, you're, you're, you're commercializing cannabis in a way that I've never seen before. So if you want to explain a little bit more, there's a lot of science behind it. Um, so tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first of all, we're not a cannabis company. We're, we're a biotechnology company. And uh, I'll be honest with you, when we first came up with the idea, I was a little trepidatious because uh, I have no vices other than caffeine. I don't drink alcohol. I'm not a cannabis user. Uh, just not not one of my my life decisions when I had my two boys just decided to give it all up to, to be present constantly. So, um, you know, still had that Nancy Reagan best marketing campaign of all time. This is your brain on drugs in, in the back of your head. Right. Um, and that, that kind of scared me off a little bit from the idea of entering this sector at first, but the more you study it and the more you learn, the more fascinating it becomes. So, um, I, before founding Celebre with my two scientific partners, uh, I had the, the privilege of working with Dr. Craig Venter, uh, Craig, for those who don't know, uh, is the gentleman who sequenced the first human genome. He announced that with Bill Clinton uh, and the head of the NIH, uh, late, late 90s, early 2000s. And he founded a company with Dr. Ham Smith, uh, who won a little thing called the Nobel Prize back in 1976. So needless to say, two scientific uh, geniuses. Um, and they had a company in La Jolla, California called Synthetic Genomics. And Synthetic Genomics is most known in the scientific community as the partner for ExxonMobil for their algae biofuels program. So if you've seen any of the Exxon commercials where they're turning algae into fuel sustainably, that was our little shot in La Jolla. And the premise for that entire company um, is that Craig went from reading DNA, so DNA sequencing, to reading the code of life, to writing the code of life, rewriting DNA. And if we go up to the 30,000 foot level and think about what biology really is. It's, it's nothing short of the world's most sophisticated and elegant manufacturing technology. Every single cell on the planet has machines inside them. And those machines are instructed by a cell's DNA code to eat nutrients and turn those nutrients into stuff. So the cannabis plant's actually a really cool example of this. If you think about what that plant is doing, it's taking nutrients from the soil, sunlight, and water, and simultaneously manufacturing over 400 chemicals, flavors, terpenes, right. um, different smells, and the most popular compounds, CBD and THC, which you now hear everywhere, right? Um, 
So what we now have the ability to do is truly treat cells like manufacturing technology. So I can take a small little microbe like yeast that you would use to make bread or brew beer, and we can swap out the machines in that yeast, put in new machines and rewrite the DNA code to turn those little cells into manufacturing facilities for almost a limitless number of products from textiles to, to medicines and, and definitely cannabis extracts. Do you, so, do you focus mainly on cannabis or what are your... Yeah, so uh, the technology is really hard to scale in commodities. So competing with, for instance, oil being dug out of the ground, which is effectively free, is really hard. So when we were founding Celebre, we really just wanted to use this technology broadly. Uh, we think that biology, not AI, is the next great industrial revolution. I think biology is going to be used to make so many products come 10, 20 years from now, uh, almost unimaginable what, what ultimately it can do. The issue is where do you start and what is the sequence and cadence of the applications where you employ biology to make your products? And one of the big things is price. And in cannabinoids and cannabinoid extracts, the nature of the plant making 400 chemicals makes getting to CBD or getting to THC, or in the extreme cases, some of these minor cannabinoids that are very interesting that you're going to hear about in the not too distant future, very cost prohibitive. It could be thousands of dollars per kilogram. And that's why when you go to buy these products, they're very expensive and not all patients and consumers can get access to them as a result of that price. So where there's natural products made, where biology is already doing the manufacturing, that's a beautiful application for this technology. And where the, act, where, the, where the economics make sense when you're talking about thousands of kilogram, thousands of dollars per kilogram versus pennies per kilogram or dollars per kilogram, that's a lot less science that you have to solve. So it's a great first app from an economic perspective. It's a great first app from a scientific perspective. And the more you study the plant, we are, we are big believers in the power of these molecules to actually heal people. So from just a feel-good perspective, it's a great app for us to start on as well. So we're 100% focused on kind of cannabis extracts and cannabinoids today, where we go in the future, whether that's bio-based plastics or whether that's manufacturing facilities for medicines, whatever that might be to be determined, but this is our first app. Wow. So it, essentially for distributors, you're making it a lot cheaper for them to distribute. So would you, would you cut out a lot of a good amount of middlemen regarding um, you know, distribution. Yeah. So I think first you have to bifurcate the cannabis market into two different segments. There's the flower market, which <clears throat> if we were to use an analogy, I would use the beer industry as an analogy. I almost view the flower market kind of like the craft beer market, a very passionate consumer base, a very educated consumer base, a consumer base that wants to know where every single thing comes from, wants, to, wants, that, wants that product and that product's journey to be part of their experience interacting with the product. Then there's the extract side of the equation. So that's in patches, pills, vape pens, cosmetics, creams, ointments, whatever you want to think of there. <clears throat> we obviously don't play in the flower market because we never touch a plant. We play in the extract market. Within that extract market, there's really three end markets. There's the regulated pharmaceutical markets. So in Carlsbad, California, there's a company called GW Pharma that actually got the first FDA-approved cannabis medicine. It's a CBD product for childhood epilepsy. They actually got that through the clinic, and it's approved. I love that. 
Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and they have really interesting data in a variety of conditions, one of which is actually glioblastoma, which is the most deadly form of brain cancer, where they're finding these molecules actually help uh, and are synergistic with traditional cancer medications. So a lot of really cool research being done there. The next market that's super interesting that nobody talks about is actually the animal health market. Um, we health. talk. Yeah. So we talked to a large pet food manufacturer and they for a decade have had cannabis related pet products ready to go. For instance, for older cats and dogs that have inflammation or joint pain, it actually helps relieve some of that pain for them where they're mixing it into pet food. It certainly uh, addresses a lot of sicknesses and ailments and uh, that the FDA does not want to address uh, for whatever reason. It just takes, it's, it's taken a long time for, for cannabis to be mainstream. Um, and I'm not sure why, except for pharmaceutical drug companies trying to prevent cannabis going mainstream. Yeah, that's a bit of a misconception, actually. Really? So, yeah, okay. there are a couple of pharma companies that don't want it to come, don't want it to come into form, and those are the ones that are making synthetic cannabinoids today. So, there's one in Arizona called Insys, which actually has a lot of trouble that has lobbied against this. Do you know the history of cannabis prohibition? I don't know the history of it. So, it's a super cool story. If you actually go back and look it up, what you'll find is that it was effectively it was effectively driven mainly by racism. So it was marketed as this terrible plant coming up from the evil Mexicans to get into our communities here in the United States and yeah. poison them and, and make them go crazy, right? This, this kind of reefer madness was what it was kind of sold to the public on. The reality, if you go back and look as to why that actually happened, that was the marketing scheme. Why it actually happened is that the Hearst family, who owned much of the newspaper industry and also owned much of the timber industry and as a result, the paper industry, bought a bunch of timber land and it was financed by the Mellons, the Mellon family, to buy all this timber land. And when hemp started coming in, they made hemp and, and the fibers in the, in the hemp plant into paper. And it's a drastically advantaged paper source. It's recyclable up to 10 times more. It's much more durable. It doesn't go bad. And the Hearst family said, oh my God, we just bought all this timberland financed by the melons. We're going to go out of business because hemp is such a better product. These hemp guys are going to put us out of business. So they basically had this entire scheme to get it banned and prohibited on the back of the textile and paper industry. It actually had wow. nothing to do with what it was sold on. So super wow. interesting that that's kind of where it, where it came from. And then, you know, it's been a lot of, and because it was prohibited, we couldn't study it. So when you're not able to study something, it's really hard to make concrete examples of efficacy. It's really hard to do studies around safety. And a lot of the research to date has been very anecdotal, small studies, not controlled. And it all comes in the United States, at least from one farm in Mississippi that quite frankly, doesn't make great doesn't produce great cannabis. So it's really hard to do the studies. But I think the more data we get, the more we're learning uh, that there's absolutely efficacy here. There's absolutely safety here. And me personally, I'm a big freedom guy. Uh, I, I don't think making things illegal and prohibiting people from consuming things is, is the right choice almost ever. Um, but I think as more data comes out, we're, we're going to learn a lot, lot more. 
even with uh, kind of the psychedelic drugs that are out right now, like the the other types of, of drugs that are out? Yeah, like, so this, uh, psychedelics are another interesting one because we actually looked at that as well. Those, those molecules yeah. can be made in the same way we can make uh, the cannabinoids or the cannabis extracts. We can do it via fermentation versus extracting them from, from mushrooms and, <clears throat> and other plants. Um, what I would say there is, that one is order of magnitudes more complex than cannabis. Um, and if it's not done the right way, you're going to end up with major issues. And, and by that, I mean cannabis and the supply chain for cannabis right now is an abject disaster. There are heavy metals, pesticides and products. Some products say they have CBD and they have no CBD. There was actually a study done by NBC where they went to a bunch of different dispensaries and took I think 48 or 49 products off the shelves and found that 40, over 40 of them had heavy metals and pesticides and harmful. Uh, it's not regulated right now. It's totally not regulated. So yeah. you have a bunch of people coming in trying to make a quick buck. And the reason it's not regulated is that the FDA has no jurisdiction. The FDA cannot drive labeling. The FDA cannot drive testing standards. None of it can be driven right now because at the federal level, it's illegal. So you effectively have 50 different, well, not 50 because it's not legal in all 50 it's states. It's ridiculous because the right type of uh, cannabis can help people in, uh, with regards to their health. And so why hasn't it been passed on the federal level? Um, why hasn't it been approved of in the, on the federal level? It's, it's weird. Yeah, well... So what we're hearing actually is that Trump would like to legalize, interestingly enough. So I think regardless of who wins this election coming up in November, I think we see legalization at some point. We've actually been told that Trump may take it off off the ballot completely and announce he's in favor of legalization prior to the election. I think they're weighing how that would impact some of the constituents within that side of the of the fence and and making that announcement and how it might impact that vote. But uh, I think fundamentally, you know, the administration would be positively inclined. Um, But again, the issue with cannabis is that you have 50 different jurisdictions setting all their own rules, all their own testing standards. The testing standards aren't great. And as a result of that, you have a bunch of products that are, that are just a mess, right? I mean, the vape, the vape epidemic is, is a great example of this. Almost none of those vape products that were causing issues were from big companies doing things the right way. They were all from the black market and the gray market and companies that are, that are kind of on the peripheral, right? If we, if we actually legalize, these products become much more safe. So my worry with psychedelics is that we're going down the same path with a much more powerful medicine. We're now going down the same path of legalizing it in Colorado and letting Colorado figure it all out. And then if that trickles down to states, we can have some severe issues with just quality of product. Is it legalized? And, in, 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 uh, are, are they legalized in Colorado? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know the the current update on the on the legalization, but I know it, it was driving forward there. Um, last I checked, we're we're exclusively focused on on cannabis and cannabinoids, so I don't I don't follow it too too closely because we can't get involved in too many things at this. Yeah, point. no, I understand. I understand. Yep. So this is great. So you you can uh, so take me on your uh, you know initial journey. You know what uh, what got you started in in this and. Yeah. So this is, this is actually much more interesting for me because I don't really like talking my own book. I, I'd much rather talk about things that are helpful for people. So when, we, when I first left synthetic genomics and decided to, to venture out on my own with my two scientific partners, think about what we were actually doing. We were taking what is the world's most complicated science, right? I mean, if you think about programming biology in the same way that you would program a computer, 
it's ones and zeros versus A, C's, T's, and G's. Those extra variables add orders of magnitude of complexity. Add on top of that that you're not programming a computer, you're programming a living organism that can die and go away. Um, it's really, really difficult science to execute, and it's even more difficult science to, to have investors and partners. Let alone trust. understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so we, we decided to take that really complex science and pair it with something that's federally illegal and do so right before the holiday. So brilliant, brilliant strategy <laughs> on our part. Um, it, was a, it was an absolute mess. So we- I mean, everything, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so we learned a lot of lessons. We started, I, my relationships are mainly in the institutional community. So the Andreessen Horowitz's, the casting capitals, the, the general catalyst, these big venture capital firms that have been around a long time. Uh, actually, our first pitch competition was at a tech conference collision and Tim Draper was one of the judges that judged our, our first round. And I've got to know Tim and his team pretty well. Um, Great, great guy. I love him. He's a crazy man. Um, but uh, so we went to all these institutional investors and all of them said, wow, great idea. We love this. Oh, great team. You're pulling out a Craig. By the way, we can't invest in this. Our, our lawyers won't let us because we have a vice clause or we have a clause that says if it's not federally legal, we can't touch it. Oh. And a lot of them actually came back to us and said, Ben, if you told me you were doing therapeutics, we could invest today. And I said, and, and I said, well, what do you mean that I wouldn't sell these things into consumer markets? And they said, yes. And I said, that's just not the thesis. And they said, well, we can't invest. And I said, that's okay. We'll send you a Christmas card. Um, <laughs> so, we, uh, so we got started and we actually went through three, over the course, it took us 18 months. So I was unemployed raising money for 18 months. We had 384 investor meetings uh, over that time period. We met with that's just brutal. about everybody. Oh, it's brutal. Like Absolutely. one of the, the hardest sales to make is uh, to an investor. And what I, I, I think it's akin to being a model, going to a modeling agency 354 times. And that, the, that modeling, those modeling agencies telling you exactly why you're not going to do it and why you're ugly. Um, and you know, why you're not going to make it in the modeling industry. And I think it's akin to that. Um, uh, and it just like tearing you apart and telling you every reason why you're going to fail and why you're not doing, you're not going to do well. And, and so was that your experience? Yeah. So first, um, your analogy is a great one, um, but obviously not one that you and I have any experience with because we're super handsome. <laughs> but um, but the uh, but but yeah, I mean, if you think about what an investor is supposed to do, it, it, their job is to say no, right? Their job is to their job is to pick you apart and say no. And the only way you get them across the finish line is that you remove all of their reasons to say no, and you get them excited about the story, right? right. Um, we we just had issues because fundamentally, even if they liked the story. And even if for some god awful reason they liked me personally, we still were doing something that was federally illegal with really difficult science. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so we, we just had, we had a really difficult time finding that needle in the haystack of the investor who could understand and diligence the science and for lack of a better term, no pun intended, that we weren't blowing smoke up their hind end. And then also that could invest in cannabis, right? And, and I'll tell you, we got lucky. So what ended up happening with us is um, over Christmas in, uh, in late 2018, um, we had one of the largest venture capital firms, and I don't want to mention them because I don't know that they would like me mentioning them, but let's just say it's a top 20 venture capital firm in the world, uh, called and said, hey, 
we heard what you were doing from credible people. We heard that your team is fantastic. We want to make a run at this because we actually think we could get it through our LPs and through our committees. And we would love to play this sector, but need to play it in a way that's thoughtful. Um, so we said, we'd love to, to dig in with you. So they were digging in on the science and about halfway through their diligence, we got a call from one of the largest CPGs in the country, top five CPG. Uh, CPG being consumer product goods company. So think General Mills is of the world, Mars families of the world, yeah. those large companies that make consumer packaged goods. Um, and they said, hey, we heard from a little birdie that this large venture firm is looking at you guys. And I said, lots of little birdies out there. Yes, that, that is true. Um, and, uh, and they said, if they play, we don't even need to look at it because we already know your team quite well. We want five to seven and a half of whatever deal they put together. Um, so everything was coming together beautifully. Um, we got to the end of diligence. We went all the way to committee. Um, the diligence went so well. Actually, some of their consultants wanted to invest personally alongside the venture firm. Um, and then, by the way, had nothing to do with me. And it had everything to do with my, my co-founders, Nikki and Spiros, who are, who are brilliant. Um, went all the way to committee. And at committee, they ended up backing out at the last second because one of their partners very, very rightly and very smartly said, we have LPs who will have issues with this. Um, in addition, we're fundraising right now in places like the Middle East. Um, where they're not going to look kindly to us announcing a deal like this. And the only way we could do it is to say, you can't sell THC into consumer markets, but we will also at the same time have a fiduciary obligation to not only allow, but force them to sell THC into, con into consumer markets. We'll be totally conflicted getting involved in this company. Mm -hmm. And that and plus a couple of other variables led them to say, look, we're just going to have to pass. So literally a couple of weeks before Christmas, we got a pass. We're on a plane from New York City back to San Diego uh, to, to basically say, we've got to regroup now because where we thought we were going is not where we're going. During, and the look flight, on my co-founder's face, what's during, that? During that flight, so go ahead. You said that. Yeah. Yo, well, we were on the subway when we found out. So we were on the way, we were on the E train all the way, on the way out to JFK and we got the call and my co I told my co-founders uh, and, and the one of the technical co-founders looked at me and was just devastated. I mean, absolutely devastated because he thought this is it. Big deal. We're off to the races. And I looked at him and I said, I said, dude, we're leaving crappy New York City in the winter to head back to 65 and sunny in San Diego where your beautiful family's waiting for you. Like, why is there a reason to frown at all? Like, this is a blip, right? Like, in the grand scheme of things, this yeah, is a nothing not a big deal. It's like, a, right? it's like a bad grade on a test. And that's, ex that's exactly right. So we, uh, we got back to San Diego. We kind of regrouped. We went away for the holiday. <clears throat> and then we got a call from the partner that was leading the deal at this large venture capital firm. And this individual said, hey, I feel terrible about how this all went down. I want you to know, first and foremost, I want to invest personally in you guys. And secondly, I got my firm to be willing to share our scientific diligence and conclusions with cannabis investors to help you get them comfortable with the science. Nice. Totally lucky, dude. Better to be lucky than good. So we were able to then go back to cannabis investors with this narrative of one of the best VCs in the world, diligence the crap out of this. They diligence it so well that the partner's investing personally. And by the way, here's their conclusions in their own words for you to take a look at. And as a result of that, we ended up getting three of the top cannabis investment firms into our seed round and close to deal about six months later. I love that. Yeah. Do you mind sharing the the... the amount you raised? 
we don't talk about it oh, yeah, in, right, in a right. public format. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah no we don't talk about it in public yeah, format. I, just, I wanted to ask you that. And I remember having a conversation with you about you not wanting me to mention that. And I remember that. Um, so, okay. So that, can you go a little bit more into that, the experience of having to talk to 354 people and, and how are you even getting in touch with these, with these guys? And um, w- was it hard to continue going and, and pushing through, you know, as you were getting rejected over and over? Yeah. So it's funny. There's this, there's a, a young man named Matt Nordigan and Matt is the CEO of a, of a cannabis growth equity fund called Arcadian. Yeah. But before that uh, he was actually on a reality TV show in Dallas. And then before that he was actually an NFL quarterback. He played quarterback at the university of Texas. Right, right. And Matt was one of the first people I met early on and totally not the right investor, but I see him at every conference and at every conference I wave to him and I say, what's up handsome. Cause he's, he actually, I, I made a joke about our looks earlier. Matt actually is extremely handsome. He could, he could probably be a model if he wanted to be. Yeah. Um, but he hugs me at every conference and he was like, dude, your endurance and, and pushing through, he was like, it inspires me every single time I see you at one of these things. Cause I remember what you went through. Right. Um, so there, there are points where you were like, you were about to throw in the towel. You were just like, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I was two months away from my wife and I selling our house and, and effectively closing up shop. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and she was totally bought in. So we were going to, we were going to kind of take it to fruition. Um, <clears throat> you know, you, you kind of have to take those chances in life. Otherwise what's, what's it worth? Yeah, it right? but, show you though, like it, it, you're very close to success. And when you think about quitting, it's probably you're closer than you think. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and by the way, sometimes quitting is probably the right answer. So I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression that, hey, you should just do this for 15 years and never get, like sometimes writing on the wall, right? But our issue wasn't that, right? We were able to read through the tea leaves to realize our idea was good. Our scientific team was very solid. It was just a matter of finding the right investor for your, us. Does your scientific team, do they have uh, PhDs? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yep. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, we got a bunch of PhDs in this place. We have to. I mean, otherwise you have dopeys like me running around. So we got to have some smart people here doing the actual work, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, back to your question of, of kind of how did you get the meetings, right? And, and how did it all work? Um, so first, I spent about a decade on Wall Street, um, in, it, most recently with JP Morgan, kind of in healthcare technology and broader life sciences. So uh, I did about $20 billion worth of deals while I was on Wall Street, financing both equity and debt, as well as mergers and acquisitions. So I had a pretty good kind of institutional base of investors that I could go to, right? So advantage me, um, you know, not many people have the experience where they know, you know, for instance, Sean Rodriguez at Kazan Capital has become a good friend of mine over the years. He's someone I respect the heck out of, and they do everything from seed stage investments to take down 20 or 30% of an IPO. So had those kind of institutional uh, accounts uh, kind, of, kind of worked in. I also talk to everybody. Um, so I try and help people and make relationships kind of everywhere I go. And you'd be shocked as to how quickly that kind of steam rolls into, I know somebody who invests in that space. Let me make an introduction to you for you. So we, we took every single meeting that we could get our hands on. Even I'll, I'll give you another great example. Andreessen Horowitz, who just, uh, by the way, VJ and Jorge run their bio fund. Congrats to those guys. They just raised $750 million, uh, new bio fund. They're 
there at Andreessen. Um, I got to know Jorge through another one of his investments. And, and by the way, the best way to get introdu- introduced to a VC or an investor is absolutely a warm introduction from another founder or another entrepreneur. Um, always try to find people in their portfolio, make friends with them and see if you get a warm intro that way. It's the easiest way to get your deck looked at and, and get a meeting because they're more inclined to go with those, those references. But I called Jorge and I said, hey, here's what we're doing. And he straight up told me, he was like, Ben, if you're in town, come by, would love to hear the story and chat about it. There's a 0% chance that we invest, zero. Zero percent. Zero. I had, and I had not one, but three meetings with Jorge as we were raising. Because every time I talked to him, he beat me up a little bit and made me think differently about the way I was pitching the story, about the way we were thinking about the business. My, uh, my advice to everybody is have as many conversations as you can with smart people, period, even if you know it's not going to benefit you directly in kind of what you're trying to accomplish. So let, let me ask you this. You're, you're talking about warm introductions. Would you prefer one warm introduction over, uh, let's say, uh, 50 cold pitches? I'd prefer one warm introduction over 5,000 cold pitches. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, you're, because you're going to get the attention of those VCs, right? I mean, it, that warm introduction is coming from somebody that they already trust. So that comfort factor of, is the person across the table for me actually legit? And is the person across the table for me actually someone that I can trust what's coming out of their mouth. That trust barrier that you have to overcome in a new relationship is almost overcome instantaneously because of the trust they already have in the person that did the warm introduction. Absolutely. hundred percent. So how many cold pitches did you do then? Oh God, you want me to bifurcate many more cold pitches than I did warm introductions. Um, Almost all. That's the thing. Yeah. Warm introductions aren't scalable. That's uh, how I see it. Yeah. Depends on your network, brother. So now, uh, yeah, so true. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but I help probably 50 or 60 entrepreneurs a year with their pitch deck, their story, their business model, and with warm introductions. And I can only do that because I had 384 investor meetings, 380 of which told me to go play in traffic, right? But I got great relationships with them because we were honest with them. We, it, you know, it, we turned away seven figures in capital because there were people who just weren't the right fit for us. And our investment, them investing us was going to drive them crazy because they don't understand biotech, right? Um, so now I have the ability to kind of reach back in and say, hey, are you, a, are you a startup that's having trouble getting introductions? You're just plowing pitch decks into a website and nobody's looking at it, right? I mean, think about these folks. There's, and, and by the way, the big tech firms are probably worse than this, but there's a, there's a cannabis VC called Canopy Rivers. They're a spin out of Canopy Growth, which is the world's largest cannabis company. And Narbe is the CEO there. I think over 18 months, Narbe got like 16, 1700 pitches just for cannabis, right? Wow. It's, like four, it's like four a day that they're getting into their, into their ecosystem. They can't possibly review all of those, right? It's a, it's a royal pain in the hind end. So, um, you know, if you could kind of hijack that whole thing, uh, obviously much, much better. Um, the key is proximity and attrition. Don't just send it into the ecosystem and say, okay, I hope that somebody clicks on this and I hope somebody opens up my deck and gets interested. Send it in through the website, email them, start looking at their portfolio, right? 
are there portfolio companies where you can get an introduction somehow? Reach into your network on LinkedIn and say, oh, I saw you're connected to this company. Can you make an intro to me so that they can then make an intro to the VC, right? You can't just do one thing. You have to be kind of all over it. You might differ with me on this, but yeah. let me ask you this. So warm introduction versus a strong brand. Uh, what's, what do you mean by strong brand? Strong personal brand? Well, yeah, a strong personal brand or a strong company brand. Um, yeah, well, I think chicken and egg there, right? It's kind of hard when you're a startup founder yeah. to have a strong That's company true. brand. Um, yeah. So, but I would say, you know, once you're into the B round and the C round, I think uh, my friend Nico, who's a, who's a partner at General Catalyst out of the Bay, uh, said this once in a talk and he says it all the time now. Um, and I think it's true. Momentum trumps everything right? I mean, I don't care about your idea. I don't care about your team. I mean, all those things are what I'm investing in. But the second you show me momentum, I no longer care about those other variables. And momentum, I kind of equate with brand, especially in areas like tech, right? If you have momentum and you have user-based growth, that means that your brand is worth something. Um, so I would say, absolutely. Um, I think I think brand 100% matters. But remember, that brand only gets you so far. I, I me, For me, it's all interpersonal relationships. So those warm introductions that overcome that trust barrier and allow you to have a, a more substantive relationship from the jump, I think are invaluable. Absolutely. So you didn't have those initially. So that's why you value them. Um, what would you, but like, if you don't have any other option, you're going to do cold pitches, right? So, I, I mean, I get people that email me all the time on LinkedIn and I'm not an investor, right? I'm not an early stage investor. And they email me because they say, I heard that you help so-and-so, will you help me? Reach mm -hmm. out to your network, get those warm intros. The warm intros don't have to come from people that you, you, you can reach out to a dope like me. And next thing you know, you know, I made an intro to Tim Draper. Shows already to to me, so I'm like, yeah, yeah. Know. But that's what it's all about, right? Like, why are we living the life if we can't help others and and be super pumped about about their success, right? So, um, you know, what I would say is just expand your network, and and there's a right way and a wrong way to do it, right? I get, you know, I would say I don't know three or four hundred messages on LinkedIn a week, um, and a lot of them are hey, Ben, look at all the stuff I can do for you. Please pay me money. But that some of them are, hey, I noticed you posted on this. Let me help you, right? Yeah. And, and I would say your approach matters, right? And, and one of the reasons I help founders is because what I found is there's a lot of people out there just trying to get a piece of everybody else's hard work right? You need to pay me money and I'll introduce you to investors. Or if you raise money, I want a part of your deal. Or I want equity in your company and I will help you raise money. Right. Such nonsense, right? I've had people come back who said, Ben, you're so helpful. We want to give you equity in the company. And I'm like, I don't want your company. That's yours. Like, don't, don't you dare. I wouldn't take it even if you offered it. Just happened to me two days ago, actually. And I was like, I want nothing to do with it. And I think if we as a community were more like that and more, it got more value from actually seeing someone else succeed versus the monetary, I think we'd be better off holistically. Oh yeah. I was just talking to a business owner yesterday. He agreed to $50 million and he said, when I start stop focusing on the money and focus more on helping others, that's when I started really growing. Yeah. hundred percent. You're going to, I introduce you to my guy, Mark, right? Mark Weinstein yeah, from, from fire. Yeah. yeah. You'll see that with him too, that he's one of the best human beings on the planet, like totally selfless, totally humble. He's the best. The best. Yeah. He was the guy that was putting everything together, right? Mm -mm. Uh, no. You, was, are you doing a podcast with him? Maybe, potentially. 
Yeah, do a podcast with him and help have him take you through it. He he was the rational voice in the room. Mark is a really interesting dude. He he worked on he was, Wall Street. He was on the he was on the Netflix special, right? He was the guy on the Netflix. Special. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So that's I, I am thinking of the the person. That, yeah, another yeah. handsome guy. Why are we talking about all these handsome men? By the way, um, yeah, but because he we're handsome men. We can recognize game, recognize yeah. game. I guess. Yeah, game, recognize game. That's right. Um, yeah, the uh, but Mark's an interesting dude. He he and I worked together on Wall Street actually, um, and we both hated it. Uh, and Mark started something called '90s Fest, where it was basically like all kinds of '90s bands that would get together and put on concerts. So he and he sold that business, and he was known for kind of this putting together these big events and these these elaborate events. And when Fire was going kind of downhill and people realized they needed some expertise in, they actually ended up connecting Mark with Billy. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to help because I was going to come anyway, right? He goes to Burning Man every year and goes to Summit every year. And he's one of these guys who attends all of these things. And he went and he was like, oh my God, what a mess. And and he spent the entire time and it didn't really come across in the special, um, but he spent the entire time just trying to make sure that people were safe, right? I mean, he was just trying to be the rational voice in the room and make sure that, you know, people didn't get hurt ultimately. But it's a really good story. You should listen to him. He, he has a really good perspective on kind of how do you deal with fraud and, and how do you deal with fraudsters and, and how do you, how do you recognize it early on? I, I haven't watched the Fire Festival in a while, but I, I remember watching the documentary and it seemed like he was not in control, but he was calling things out for what they were, which was there's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a lot of things that just weren't matching up and weren't congruent with what they were trying to accomplish and so he was trying to call them that out but he wasn't able to control the the outcome of what was happening yeah i that guy that guy doesn't seem like a controllable person right uh yeah I don't know. that was a controllable personality so, so for, for for people listening the fire festival was a festival in which uh there was one major ceo uh, one ceo who uh, planned this entire get uh, get together at, in it was supposed to be at an island and it just all fell apart and it was promoted by all these celebrities and models and and uh, people that had a lot of influence on social media and it it went uh, to crap because he didn't prepare the right way the operations of the whole uh, project wasn't uh, wasn't uh, efficient and wasn't uh, executed properly so um and in fact it got to the point where there was people like taking pictures of the the bad food that they got at at this uh, particular location that they chose to do this festival at uh, so yeah it's interesting yeah 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 it was a brilliant social media marketing campaign though oh yeah absolutely that, brilliant. that part of it was brilliant brilliant absolutely they got like kylie jenner i think to promote yeah. it or something yeah. Yeah. i'll be honest i don't understand any of that stuff i don't have the tweeter really? I don't have Facebook. Twitter, Twitter. No, none of that stuff, man. Small, let's, that stuff. Call it, let's call it the right name. Let's call yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not. I'm on LinkedIn, and that's that's pretty much it. So yeah, LinkedIn's great for networking. Also, podcasting. Have you have you done a lot of podcasting? No, I haven't. I just started. I just started getting into this uh, this kind of format of of talking to people and and shooting ideas around. So it's it's like a way to build your Rolodex. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, but you saw me trying to get onto this podcast. So technically, it's a disaster. You have, the, you have the whole setup though. So yeah. that's what's confusing. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. You got to buy, buy great equipment and then just assume that it'll work, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So let's go back into uh, you, you trying to get all these investors. Um, you were two months away from quitting, correct? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, Two months away from being at zero in my bank account. Why didn't you quit? Um, Well, I didn't quit because we got money, right? Um, The reason I didn't quit like more holistically though is um, number one, just I, I believed that this was the right time and a great idea. So for instance, a lot of investors said, well, Ben, why don't you do this when it's federally legal and you can get money from pretty much anybody? And I said, then you're two years too late right? Yeah. Like now is the time to do it. These are the, the time to do the crazy idea is when it's a crazy idea. When it's, when it's legalized, it's no longer a crazy idea, right? right. Um, so, so much competition. Totally, total belief in the application uh, from an economic perspective and from a scientific perspective. Um, team, team, and team. I mean, everything starts and ends with team. And, and the people here aren't only brilliant, they're friends, they're amazing human beings, they do amazing things every day. And they were relying on me to raise money, right? I mean, you had people out there who, you know, it was it was my job to fill the gas tank up so that we could take this journey, right? That, that was my job and I did not want to let them down. And then I think third to that is um, the product set itself. I, I went from, you know, eggs in a frying pan to, I am a total believer in cannabinoids. Um, I am a total believer in efficacy. I'm a total believer in, in, in all of the different product sets that are ultimately going to come from this. And for me, um, and for our technology, it's all about access. Um, right now, these products are just way too expensive and a big sloth of the market is completely cut out because of economics. And if we can drive up quality and drive down price and broaden the market and broaden the access for things that uh, can really help in places like, for instance, pain management uh, and the opioid epidemic in the three states that legalized, you actually saw Medicare prescriptions for opioids drop 30% in the first 12 months. That's real lives right? That, that's, that's really changing things for people to the positive. So um, for us, the reason that we kept going forward was belief. It was belief in product. It was belief in science. It was belief in business model and it was belief in team. What do you feel about the pharma industry? Like what, what are your thoughts and feelings about? It's amazing. The pharma industry is amazing. And, and they get, you know, we, too often in society now, we like to yell at these straw men, right? Like, Oh, healthcare is not good. So I'm going to yell at big pharma. Like, do you know 50% of your medicine costs actually don't go to the pharmaceutical company? They go to all these middlemen. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows that, right? right? Do you know that it costs that pharmaceutical company on average $1 billion to get a medicine to market? And by the way, that $1 billion could very easily be zero because they don't get it approved, right? It's true risk capital in biology. This isn't, this isn't easy stuff where you just, you know, you hire a couple of programmers from the Philippines to build your MVP and it really didn't cost you that much to see if it works yeah. or not. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, they, they're vilified very, very much. But if you think about it, you know, it, it, I'll, I'll give you a great example. JP Morgan has a healthcare conference every year in San Francisco. It's usually the second full week of January. Um, they do it at a time where the weather is, you know, mm-hmm. the absolute worst. They try and find a time when it's absolutely going to rain and be cold and be gross. And they hold it in the tenderloin, which is probably the grossest area of San Francisco. So they have all that going for them. But there were a couple of companies that came up with medicines that literally cured hepatitis C. Cured it, gone. 99% of the time, it removes the disease. P.S., this disease is often in very poor communities, um, and it literally eradicated the disease. There were protesters outside 
because the drug was too expensive. They're curing a disease, yeah, making it go away, and now we're protesting it because they spent a billion dollars and they need to recoup that investment. That's just the way economics works. And if you actually go and study, what are they, what are they actually doing, right? All of these drug companies, for the most part, have programs where if you can't afford the medicine, they work with you. Mm-hmm. They'll work with you on it, right? You can go through the the companies and they have programs set up for access, perfect, right? It's not a perfect industry. Uh, there are bad players in the industry. Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge, like, I'm not a huge fan just because of personal reasons of some of the pharmaceutical companies, but there are some great people that work in the pharma industry uh, and they're actually trying to be good by people. Um, so it's, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to... Um, villainize people like that but there are some bad people and in, in, are some bad players in in that sector um i would say like for example uh like viox for example i just felt that 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 whole thing was was not good um uh, but there's there's bad people in every sector it doesn't yeah. matter you know what sector you're looking at you know, healthcare, you're looking, if you're looking at, you know, uh, widgets, there's, yeah. there's going to be bad. Well, there's, there's actually a really good example. There's a company called Insys, spelled I-N-S-Y-S. They make synthetic THC products. And that dude's going to jail. They're a terrible pharma company. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. He's an absolute fraud, right? Uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the woman from Theranos. Oh, yeah, Theranos. About, she's, right? she's like just a, oh, man. Complete fraud. And by the way, everybody in healthcare knew it. I like, I would get calls, Ben, what do you think of Theranos? And I said, it's an absolute fraud. She doesn't have one healthcare company there. They're using Siemens and Roche technology from 25 years ago and nothing works. And, and actually, uh, Bill Morris, you knew that from the very, from the very good. Oh, a hundred percent. Anybody, if you talk to anybody in healthcare who was willing to be vocal, they would have told you it was nonsense, right? <laughs> There's actually companies now that are doing things the right way. There's one called Truvian Sciences here in, in uh, San Diego, T-R-U-V-I-A-N, I think. They're doing the same thing, but they, they actually have a real science. They're actually making really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're fantastic. Just so you guys are aware, just the listeners, uh, for the listeners, because we, we know of Theranos, but maybe yeah. not everyone knows about Theranos. But Theranos is a, is a company that began by Elizabeth Holmes. Um, and essentially, she touted a, uh, a vial that would, that would be able to take, uh, a kind of diagnose anyone's ailments um, based on a prick of your finger uh, with a, a tiny uh, uh, bit of blood. That could that could help you define what was wrong with you, or you know take do labs or I guess you you correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it essentially touted that we can do an entire lab, uh, get, get you lab results based on a prick of your finger. Yeah, and uh, and by the way, Tim Draper uh, is was a big supporter of and still to this day supports her, and she's she's an absolute fraud. She she set back that industry a good five years, and the technology there are technologies that will actually work. There's actually a couple, HBO did a documentary and then there's a Netflix documentary called the inventor out for blood. So yeah. if you wanted to know more about the story, those are, there's a good, how did she show. get so far? That's what I'm, 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 not, I'm so confused about. It was, she was so deceptive. She's actually really smart, but so deceptive that she got through all these people and she got all these investors to believe in what she was doing. Yeah. Uh, but a certain type of investor. So, yeah. uh, do you know who Bill Morris is? Yeah. 
founder of Google Ventures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a lot yeah. of people don't know he's a San Diego guy. So just so you know, all good things from from San Diego. He was never in the Bay. He's actually down here in San Diego. He has a new fund called Section Thirty Two. Yeah. Uh, Bill looked at Theranos at um, when he was at Google, and he was like, they wouldn't show him anything. He was like, can I see it? Can I touch it? What's the idea? How, how did she trick all these like investors then? Very confidently gave her message and her vision. And she was a very good presenter and she was very influential. But Bill is a pro. And he was like, I'm not giving you money until I get to look at this, right? So he, he was trying to dig in. So finally, he just sent one of his junior people to Walgreens. It was like, go order the test. Let's see what comes back. And he ordered the test and it came back and he took a look at the results and took a look at the turnaround time. He's like, this is nonsense and walked away. Right when you got the actually the 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 folks who would really do their diligence and dig in and made one phone call and and by the way you could take a look at governance look at the board unbelievably crazy board right I mean just the who's who of world affairs but no one from biotech not one person with a scientific background right did you just have relationships with these guys or like how did she. Well, she was Tim Draper's family friend. Um, so she had some pretty good relationships in Silicon Valley. And again, she's a very good presenter. She was a very big visionary. Um, she had, I think she actually was, I think she actually believed in what she was saying, right? I actually think she thought I'm going to get there. I just need more time, right? And it was one of these too. things. I think she did too. Yeah. 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 I think it was one of these things where her confidence in what she was doing kind of, outstripped what was actually technically feasible with the approach that they were taking. But I, I, there's a, uh, I, I would encourage people to take a look at Truvian, T-R-U-V-I-A-N. I have no affiliation, but they're actually doing Theranos the right way. Uh, and they actually have a platform that, that can do uh, low quantities of blood and do all those. Truvian. So yep. they are, there's somebody out there actually doing what, mm -hmm. that, that would definitely revolutionize healthcare. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, it just hasn't been executed. And you think they're gonna they're gonna get to the they're yeah they're killing it. They're doing they're doing really really well. They just raised uh, they just raised another round. The co-founders there are amazing people. They've done things in cancer diagnostics before. Um, yeah, just wow. awesome. And I, again, I have no affiliation, so I'm not talking my own book here or anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You sound like you're very like familial. It seems like you you yeah. you. Uh, it almost seems like when I first talked to you, it was like, why? Well, I think I've known this guy or something in the past in my past life or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, first generation Italian man sitting around the table with with a hundred cousins, just trying to get your food and you know <laughs> always be always be talking, mostly with our hands, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you're definitely extroverted for sure. Uh, so, but it's it just astounding how how the 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 craziness of the story of Theranos and how she got all these like people to believe in her, but it was just complete, just nonsense. Um, and it just goes to show you that you know you can have a charismatic personality and. Um, you can make things happen, I guess. Yeah, to bring the conversation back full circle, warm intros, brother. Yeah. Right? That trust factor is so important. So yeah. important. Well, but then she used warm intros too, so it could- Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could backfire, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so tell me, where are you planning on taking your company at this point? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, right now, we are just so deep into the blocking and tackling of- turning a cell into a factory of CBD. I mean, that's just where we're, where we're laser focused. I think ultimately where this goes is we believe that this is the first application on which we can build a business. There are many companies out there that are trying to do this technology, hundreds um, actually. Um, 
but they're trying to compete in, in really hard markets. So I'll give you a, a, another one that I love that just raised, I think, $161 million, and it's called Memphis Meats. Have you heard of Memphis Meats? Hmm. So these guys are in the food space, and what they're doing is they're actually taking stem cells from cows, and they're putting those stem cells into a fermentation tank, and they can grow you a marbleized steak without the cow. No, so the removal, yeah. So, so, but it, by the way, it's not synthetic. It's not artificial. It's literally the same exact thing that you would get from a cow, right? Wow. It is a cow, but without the cow. So, it, it, and a lot of people don't know this, but if you put all the, uh, Bill Gates actually put this the best. He, um, he said, if you took all the cows in the world and put them in one country, they would be the fourth, fourth most polluting country in the entire planet because wow. of the methane that comes out of their hind ends, right? Wow. So that's a really cool technology. The problem with it is cow cells and mammalian cells broadly grow really slow. Um, they, they take a lot of nutrients to grow them up and it could be very, very expensive. So I actually had one of their meatballs a long, long time ago. And I think the meatball at that time cost like $2,000. Right. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but that's what it costs them to make it. But they're going to drive that down. In biology, the price comes down with scale. They'll drive it down over time. But the economics there are going to be really, really difficult to figure out because having cows is not that expensive, right? You can, you can get those prices down. And, and the ag industry is really, really good and really, really efficient. So, and there's another company called Bolt Threads. Do you know Bolt Threads? They're up there in, the, in San Francisco, uh, I think. In San Francisco. What do you think about the agriculture industry, by the way? Uh, I, uh, so full disclosure, my cousin Alio, uh, it was the vice president of the future farmers of America. And he put himself through school on a 175 acre farm, uh, raising animals. So I, I do have a little bit of a bias. Um, I think they get, I think they get poo pooed a lot. And I think they get poo pooed a lot because of things that they've done in the past when, when quite frankly, we didn't have a better way. Um, I'll be controversial with you again. I think Monsanto is probably one of the best scientific organizations on the planet. And I think oh, man. <laughs> things, um, but the agriculture industry has come a long way. So I, do you know anything about regenerative agriculture? Yeah. So a bunch of that is going on now. And if, and if you had to talk to people who are doing, for instance, animal agriculture, in the right way and they're doing crops in the right way, there have been some massive innovations going on in food. And again, this goes to the thesis, we are, we are a company that's genetically modifying organisms, right? So we are GMO to the core. GMO 2.0 is gonna be one of the coolest things ever to happen to the planet because GMO 2.0 is not about, it's not about how much Roundup Ready can we get onto crops or how quickly can we grow crops bigger, faster, more beefy to drive economics. GMO 2.0 is all about health. It's all about health for the planet and it's all about health for humans. So let me give you a great example. Have you ever heard of the Arctic apple? Mm. They found an enzyme in the apple that makes the apple brown. And using GMO technology, they were able to pop that enzyme out, literally one little protein. And now when you cut the apple into apple slices, it can stay in your fridge for about a week and not go brown. Wow. So this is the conversation I would have when I was unemployed raising money for Celebre with the moms uh, in the community I live, dropping off our kids to preschool. They would, you know, very organic here in Southern California. And I'd be like, I love GMOs. Let me tell you all about this Arctic <laughs> apple. And they were like, GMOs, <laughs> yeah, they would say GMOs are gross, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, uh, really? I was like, well, then you're okay with food waste. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, how often do your kids come home with brown apples that they didn't eat because they were brown and you throw them away? And they were like, all the time. And I said, well, what if I told you there's a way from a GMO perspective to make those not brown anymore and be just as healthy and just as nutritious, right? And by the way, 
80% of them told me I was an idiot, but 20% went and researched it and they came back and they were like, actually, this is super cool. Right. Um, so GMO 2.0 is all about things like that, making things more nutritious, um, making things taste better, making things more sustainable, both for people and for planet. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really, really cool place to be. That's great, man. That's great. Yeah. So, okay. So to going back to where you plan on taking this company. Yeah. So for us, um, we're just going to knock this app out of the park. And then I think this app provides us a financial and business basis to go do all of these crazy things. So uh, materials are another place where we can go. Like I told you about Memphis Meats. I mentioned Bolt Threads. If you go look up Bolt Threads, their founder actually studied spiders in college for his PhD and specifically spider silk. Do you know anything about spider silk? Yeah. Yeah, so if you, yeah, so if you, for, for those who don't know, if you took a spider web and you weaved it into a fabric, right. it's almost dang near bulletproof. So you could build almost a bulletproof. I mean, it's the most, Absolutely. the tensile strengths are crazy, right? It's an unbelievable fabric. What's the problem? Why don't we make all of our clothes out of that? It's breathable, it's soft. The problem is if you put a bunch of spiders in a room together and try and grow a bunch of spider webs, they're carnivorous and they eat each other. Can't scale spiders. Yeah. So this guy figured out we can take those same DNA code and the machinery and the spider that makes this protein that is spider silk. And we could pop it into yeast and we can ferment this stuff and remove spiders from the supply chain. Right? Interesting. There's another company called Twist Biosciences. Um, do you know that you could take the entire Smithsonian archive, code it into DNA, and it would be stored in a room smaller than the one you're in right now? Really? Yep. Yeah, DNA that. is basically a massive package of information. So Twist Biosciences is working with Microsoft on using DNA as a storage technology. And as sequencing DNA gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, we'll actually be able to store all of our data in these DNAs and then sequence them to access that data in the future. So moving away from these massive farms of, uh, massive farms of storage and cloud-based computing and literally using biology as a data storage tool. Right. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But wh why wouldn't you just want to make a more efficient like cloud storage tool as opposed to. Because I could store everything in that room that you're in right now. Like good luck. It, it, the, the way DNA works and the way DNA stores nature is beautiful, man. Beautiful. And the way, the way, the amount of information that you can store in a very small area is amazing. So Twist is one of them. There's another one called Catalog. There's another one here in San Diego called Molecular Assemblies. There's a couple companies that are kind of working on this thesis. Interesting. So that would, that would definitely compete with cloud storage. And, uh, yeah. Or the cloud storage guys would just use it, right? Yeah, that would be the smart way to go if yeah. if this is going to overtake, you know, other technologies for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool, man. Um, okay. Well, was there ever a point? So you want there? There was a few times you wanted to quit. Can you just really quickly go over those those points? And then, um, and then, what was your like breakthrough moment? Would you say I, probably when you when you got funding? But I want to hear it in your words. Yeah, I mean, I think the only times that quit ever entered my mind is when it was putting stress on my family. Um, yeah. For me personally, never, right? But when you're running up on literally working your hind end off for a decade to build a savings, to live in a community, to have a certain lifestyle, and you're a couple months away from all of that going away, that's pretty stressful, right? Um, wasn't stressful for me because I was just like, you know what, we'll figure it out. I yeah, mean, but your family, yeah, yeah. But my family, freaking out, right? Um, so I, I think that's the only time where I was like, do I need to go get 
a real job and be a cog in the wheel and get back into the workforce and build up my net worth again so that so that do you we feel can... like it's uh like it's in your dna to be an entrepreneur as opposed to uh i don't know i don't know i, I you know I, i'm a widget guy to be honest with you like if if you ask me what i really wanted to do it wouldn't be early stage biotech there are easier ways to make money than early stage biotech. It goes back to our talk about pharma. You can spend a lot of money and literally have that money turn into zero. It's pretty damn binary, right? Either it works or it doesn't work. Um, you know, there's easier ways to do. I grew up, you know, first generation. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my dad threw me into a factory that made steel expansion joints when I was like 12 years old. I've always loved widgets and widget manufacturing. So I think if if you ask me if this didn't exist and what would I be doing, I'd probably be making faucets somewhere, right? I mean, I just enjoy manufacturing, kind of what I enjoy doing. Um, I'll tell you what I realized. Self-awareness is really the biggest key, I, I think, to life, but definitely to kind of career business, knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at. I am terrible as a cog in the wheel. I am a, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not Me good too. in that environment. Me too. Me too, man. Yeah. That's why I, like, yeah. And, and I think it's the bluntness, right? Like I, I don't have much of a filter. And when I, when I went to work for these companies and I was part of an executive team, if I thought something was wrong or I thought something wasn't right, I, I just bluntly said, yeah, that like, makes no sense. Right. And the politics of it, when you're in a bigger organization, get messy and I'm just not the guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you, you have to play politics. You have to figure out when the right thing to say, uh, when you should say the right thing or when you should, I don't know, say the wrong thing, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just uh, you have to filter yourself and it's just not fun. Yeah, you know, It's just, in my opinion, I, I don't think I could ever like be an executive, uh, but I, I could hire executives. <clears throat> I, I, I could do that. Because I, I talk about this a lot. There's a difference between like a one or I, I've interviewed a lot of people that talk about this and there's a difference between a, like a, a first stage entrepreneur and a second stage entrepreneur and a third stage entrepreneur. They're all different and yeah. require different types of people. But again, it's self-awareness too, right? So I, uh, so I have a portfolio company called 83 Bar out of Austin, yeah. Texas, and they do something super cool. We don't need to get into what they do, but their CEO and founder is a guy named Bob Bars. And Bob told me uh, when I first met him, he said, Ben, I kill it from napkin to like 20 or 25 employees. <laughs> he was like, after that, get me out of there. I'm a liability. Like I, I should not be anywhere around, right? And it's total self-awareness of where he slots in and what he's really, really good at. By the way, one of the most amazing humans I've, I've ever met. Just a great, great person. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think it's a different, fe as we say in the, in the world of biology, it's a different phenotype. It's a different, it's a different set of characteristics that take people for different stages of a company, different positions within a company. And there are the very rare breeds that can be that napkin all the way to I'm a multi-billion dollar company and do it well. Who, who do you think represents somebody like that? Um, uh, I mean, I think you see it, you see it in kind of these, you know, these kind of transcendent entrepreneurs, right? The Bill Gates of the world, the, yeah. the jobs, you know, well, Steve actually sucked at it too. Let's be honest. He wasn't a great people person. He was just, you know, yeah, that's he, true. he had good, he had good people surrounding him and he got kicked out a few times before, before they actually made it work. Right. Uh, I think Elon Musk has similar issues, right? He's just crazy brilliant and you'd never want to bet against the guy, but he'll tweet some stuff that he probably shouldn't tweet as a public company CEO. 
right? Um, yeah. I think Richard Branson's probably one of those guys too, right? Um, that that has been able to to scale a business and hold it together. I think Larry Ellison at Oracle is another one. Um, I think Mark at, at Salesforce is probably another one that could kind of take it from zero so all the way up. It's so interesting. Sorry, I got this. Uh, yeah. I, I'm expecting an April, uh, daughter in April. Oh, congrats, brother. Yeah, thank you, thank you. But we have uh, we have all these toys here. <laughs> so Yeah. Uh, from the baby shower. So um, how do you, like, Larry Ellison, I'm sure at some point, or Steve Jobs at some point, probably thought to themselves, well, maybe this isn't my thing, but they still continued. Do you think that most people, I, I think that they're, they're kind of outliers, right? Yeah. I think I think generally people that can go from napkin to $10 billion company are outliers, right? It, the other interesting thing, so to bring it back to the scientific community, um, a lot of biotechs actually have PhDs as their CEOs, and their entire C-suite is nothing but PhDs. I think that's a fundamentally terrible way to form an executive team because PhDs and technical founders have a very different way of thinking about the world. It's very logical. It's very systematic. It's very calculated. It's not necessarily the same way that a run-of-the-mill entrepreneur or business person would think about the world, but it's not the same way that a CFO would think about the world. And in biotech, there's yeah. yeah. So in biotech, if you go look at the CEOs who have PhDs, there are very few scientists who become very, very wealthy and very successful CEOs. Very few. And I think it's the same in the technical side of the world too, right? Eventually that technical founder has to kind of step aside and say, okay, someone needs to hand the business. Someone needs to be on the stage talking the talk. Because I think it's that there's, there, it's very rare for somebody to be able to talk, to do the technical and then communicate the technical in a way that dopey people like you and me can understand. Right. And I think it's just a different skill set. And the people that can do that are billionaires and good for them. They should be. Uh, it's, it's really hard to do. So I think you, saw, you find the same thing in ones and zeros land as you do in ACCs and G's land. It does take a genius to, to explain something complex and make it very simplistic to people, to, to yeah. people or lay yeah. people. Hey, speaking of which, here's the question for you. The Elon Musk window breaking on the cyber truck. Yeah. Do you think that was all set up? Maybe because for publicity. Maybe for publicity. I don't know. There's no way. So that wasn't a failure. That's how bulletproof glass works. There's no way that Elon Musk doesn't know that, right? I have to imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go if you go YouTube, bulletproof glass breaking. Every video will look the exact same. The point of bulletproof glass is not to not crack. It actually is the exact opposite of that. It's, it's a bunch of layers of glass that break and dissipate the energy so that the object doesn't get through. Hmm. Yeah. And I imagine that he had to know that. I don't know. I don't know. But again, I, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, but but, but you, 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 he, he did other tests before that and the glass wasn't breaking. Hmm. So he was like smashing brick on glass before. And for whatever reason. So like, what, what do you think he would do that? Just for publicity? Just I mean, how many retweets did he get, a, a get from Elon Musk's failure? And then how many t-shirts did he sell with the broken glass on the front of him? <laughs> Rushed, dude. True. Rushed. Yeah. Rushed. This, this, yeah, he's a genius. He's a genius. So. Oh, he's an evil genius. Evil genius. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually buddies with a professional poker player um, who actually got to play poker with him one time and was like, dude, like... Where, where that dude's mind goes is just nutty. Just nutty. Really? We need more of those in the world, man.
Yeah, he's definitely – he's sold like 10,000 flamethrowers. Who the hell sells 10,000 flamethrowers? Well, who comes up with the – not only comes up with the idea, but has the balls to be like, I'm going to sell flamethrower, right? That, I mean, that's what it is. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the cojones to actually follow through with it. The fact that he sold 10,000 of them, not really that surprising. I wanted one. Didn't you want one? Kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. You just say flamethrower and uh, just playing around with it. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what I'd do with it, but I kind of wanted one. I mean, how much do you know how much it was? It wasn't that expensive. It was only, I don't know exactly, but I don't think it was that expensive. Sold out so quick. It's yeah. Gone. Yeah. All right, man. Well, how do people get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you? or Link, LinkedIn. That's the only place you can find me. I told you, I don't have this IG and DMs and tweeters and whatever it is you kids use nowadays to communicate other than actually meeting people, shaking a hand and having Dude, a cup of coffee. You look pretty young yourself, man. I don't know. <laughs> I'm an old soul, brother. Old soul. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, cool. Um, so on, so your name, Ben Chiarelli? Chiarelli, and it's spelled C-H-I-A-R-E-L-L-I. And there's only two of us. I think the other one is the GM of the Boston Bruins. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, kind of. I'm a Penguins fan, so you know, oh, okay. <laughs> screw him and get different colors for your jerseys. Are you are you that aggressive fan? Uh, no, I'm. You know, I hate I hate everybody equally except for Tom Brady, who I hope falls out of his bed and his sleep every night. <laughs> that's about that's awesome. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like Gary Vaynerchuk. He's like that too. He's like he's very aggressive with regards to his sports. Yeah, he's he's awesome. And I actually uh, through our journey. See, this is another thing, right? Through the journey of meeting three hundred, I actually became uh, quasi friends with his brother AJ, who's much more intelligent and much better looking. He actually runs Vayner Sports. AJ is an awesome dude, and I actually got introduced to him through uh, a young man named Calvin Beecham, who's the left tackle for the Jets right now. Um, I suggest everybody follow Calvin, by the way. Calvin is one of the most amazing human beings I've come across. If you go look up some of his videos and speeches, I mean, just an awesome dude. Angel invests in a lot of infrastructure stuff. Um, really cool dude. With a guy named Brad Pinvidic. Sounds familiar. I don't, I don't think so, though. With the three-minute rule? Oh, really? No. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he's cool. He's a great guy. He, yeah. works on a lot of, he worked on a lot of TV shows. Anyways, let's definitely uh, connect again, man. I, I appreciate yeah. you for being on the podcast, and I just want to ask you something really quick. 